0: Darkness! No parents! And that's my rumination on. No, I'm, I'm kidding. I am kidding. Oh gosh, where do I begin? I am legitimately surprised by how. <sighs> how much I enjoyed this one. I mean, I've always said City's good, but I've only ever played it once before. And as I've said many times, going through with Analysis Mode on and actually giving things a rating has shown and changed my opinion of quite a few things over the years as I've been doing this job. Seeing City skyrocket to the top of the list. Like, actually, hang on, just a second. The review isn't live yet, but I know what the final score was. And I'm curious just how highly it rates compared to how many other games I have, because this was a very good game. The... Oh, God, where do I begin? The music, first of all, was actually really, really good. Obviously, kind of a, a mix of the Nolan films as well as the uh, the, ba- the Batman the Animated Series, which, of course, this was in many ways inspired by. We also have... Uh, the kit was expanded substantially. And I'm I'm trying to make up stuff as I go here. Hang on. Okay, so uh, this would be... Above Ghost of Tsushima, to give it a perspective just below... God of War 4, in terms of how highly I would rate this. In fact, of the games I've reviewed so far, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, this would be my 8th highest rated game ever, just in terms of sheer score. And I stand by that. A wonderful licensed game, and actually makes you feel like Batman as you zoom around. Um, the VR missions, the, which give you the upgrade, being able to, to glide through the city... Being able to zip line through the city, being able to dive through the city, being able to run through the city. All of these are good things. And also, and this is going to sound like a weird thing to comment on, because this is an open world game, but the open world is actually pretty small. But that's a good thing. One of the problems the overwhelming majority of open world games make, in my opinion, is they're too open and too empty. And both of those are kind of related issues there. In this case, we have this relatively small area that is fairly dense. Just about every city just you know, if you go like a street down the way, there is something else to do, and something else that you will eventually interact with, either between the hush stuff or between the, the pre uh, not the predator <laughs> the dead shot missions or having to do Riddler stuff or just helping someone who's out on the street or whatever. There's tons of stuff to do in a fairly dense area, which I love. So getting around is fun, which is important for an open world game. The, the size of the open world isn't too big, and the density is good. All of that is excellent, but then they add more kit to you. I, I kind of referenced that earlier. So in addition to the, the kit you had previously, you get the freeze grenades. You get uh, the ability to continue to hit someone when, you ca- when you're... when Excuse me, counter someone while you are still hitting someone. You get the the lunge over people. The stun works better than it did in the previous game. There is a lot more that you can accomplish in this one. Especially since you are... Because of the open world format, if you're getting into a random fight, especially out, in, out and about, out in the city, you can always just peace out. Or just run down the road, or just get away from it and in some way. No longer have to deal with it. They're not, they're not mandatory encounters, in other words. And obviously, that doesn't apply for the, the missionaries, or the, the sections where you have to actually go through the levels, but... Even those areas usually have some kind of peace-out option, usually going up to the gargoyles, although not always. So, good stuff all around. The There's a few Princess Peach sections where he plays Catwoman, and she does play a little bit differently. She's much faster in her overall attacks, doesn't hit quite as hard and her animations, for her finishing animations, are substantially slower, which means you're less inclined to do that. At least I was less inclined to do that. I ended up just beating the crap out of everyone. But she also starts off with her kit right off the bat, which is far more oriented towards stunning enemies, which just kind of helps her to control the environment a lot better. With the Caltrops, is probably my personal favorite there. Um, the I want to talk about tempo. In Arkham Asylum, the tempo of combat was a sort of a steady beat as you move through each section, but they did a lot of refinement and I cannot properly explain this because I'm an idiot, but the idea is they Made it easier to cancel your animations. They made you snap to people more. They increased the snap to distance. They increased the directional capacity for selecting your next target. They gave you better uh, button queuing. If you hit the button before you actually should be able to, you can queue it up kind of a thing. And I feel like there's a few other little details they added there. But either way, the flow of combat is astonishingly better. Like, just the combat's fun but the flow of combat as a completely separate thing is a much, much better, much more refined process from the previous game. And the tempo is a lot more like that as opposed to the previous tempo. And while well, you could argue that's not Bats' style, that'd be someone more like, say, Nightwing, and I would agree with you on that, from a purely gameplay perspective, it is way more fun to play. No joke, and I think this is in the highlights reel. Uh, at one point in the game... I had this moment where I looked up from a grade as I was sneaking through an area, and I see like 15 guys, and I'm like, ugh. And then I was like, wait, no, I'm playing Arkham City. This is going to be awesome. And so I rushed up there, and one of them was a Riddler dude, too. So I had to take down all the 14 guys while leaving the green guy untouched so I could properly interrogate him, which I did. And it's just that city in a nutshell. I never got bored of the combat, not counting the DLC. I also have to give special praise to the level design, since there is some. Oh, the level was the level design wasn't terrible in Asylum, but it was mostly... Um, let's call it Zelda LTTP style. I know that's a strange comparison, but hear me out for a second. Because in LTTP, all of the, the level design is basically on a room-to-room basis. This room, which exists in a vacuum compared to all the other rooms, right? Like, there's very few exceptions to that. Fast forward a little bit to something more like, say, Majora's Mask or Ocarina of Time or Twilight Princess. The level design is far more, there's this one room and there's like three or four times you'll go through it and each time things are going to be a little bit different. It's more of a that approach when it comes to level design, and several of the dungeons, uh, most notably the museum and the steel mill, actually gave me that Zelda vibe in a good way, obviously, with little puzzles you can do and different methods of pr- progression through them, and you, know, you get some choices, and you get some combat, you get some predator sections, you get some stealth sections, good variety and also good pacing overall, which is very important for a game like this, even a relatively short game like this. But I also have to give especially good praise to the boss fights because we actually have some. I would say only a couple of the boss fights I didn't like, and I'll talk about that in a second. Overwhelmingly, the boss fights were actually fun. Solomon Grundy, uh, you know, going after uh, Clayface was very fun. The uh, Raish—I want to say Raz because I always want to pronounce it Raz—but Raish Al ghouls fight was just phenomenal. It, it was very arcadey. But I'm okay with that because I'm okay with a video game being a video game. Like, I, I'm, I'm big on story, and I'm big on story and, and gameplay integration. But there's a reason there's that runner part of the title. Lore runner. Uh, the gameplay... if I would prefer to have good gameplay over a good story if I had to pick between the two when it comes to a video game. And if you need to have a boss be an arcade boss to make it more fun, then I'm okay with that. Which is exactly what they did with Raish and Clayface, actually. There's a few others, but the, the really interesting boss fight, the one that everyone praises, is Mr. Freeze. Now, whenever I walk into something like that, I'm always a little hesitant because I'm like, okay, hang on, everyone loves this, everyone thinks it's amazing, what am I going to think? No, no, it, it really is that, that amazing of a boss fight. You can really tell the level of quality and effort and time that was spent on the Mr. Freeze boss fight. The number of ways you can interact with him in order to stun him, in order to hit him. The fact that, depending on your difficulty, you have to do a certain number of them. The fact that there's 14, I think, different actual methods you can use. And so many of them are creative. And there's even a tip in-game after you you analyze him, which is like, here, supercomputer says, these are the methods you can use to hit him. Absolutely brilliant, phenomenal fight. I, I cannot gush enough about the Mr. Freeze boss fight. Forgive me for joining the crowd on this one, but... I mean, sometimes an apple is an apple, right? Now, you're hearing me gush and gush and gush and gush and gush. Do I have any negatives to say about the gameplay? Yes, the DLC. I jumped into the DLC, and I was a bit tired, in the interest of fairness. I was a bit tired, I was running a little bit late, but, you know, I was like, okay, let's jump into this, let's see what it is. And it was padding. Uh, gone were the interesting level set pieces. Gone were the interesting encounter design. Gone was the interesting boss fights. Instead, it was just a series of normal encounters with the types of enemies we've already fought up until this point in time, strung out over and over and over and over, with a lot of backtracking over the same small area. Well, I say a lot of backtracking. It's like one, two, three, four, and then five, six. So six or seven, depending on how you're counting. M- m- instances of backtracking over the same area which got pretty old and then the fact that you're also playing as Robin which you'd think I'd like because Tim's awesome but the problem is he just felt wrong. Unfortunately I don't have a good way to explain this. He, He didn't feel responsive and in several cases it felt like he literally would not do what I wanted him to do even though I was hitting the buttons that should be telling him how to do that. Like, there was just some issues with him. Several people in chat during stream mentioned something similar. I'm curious if any of you ever had a similar problem. Um, I don't know. I can only speculate here, because the whole section just felt... Ugh. But the fact that the only negatives I can mention for the gameplay are from the DLC is nothing short of phenomenal. But you want to talk about the story, I'm sure... This story is a fairly typical three-act structure, interestingly paced, but well-paced. Unlike Asylum, which fell apart hard towards the end of the game in terms of story, in terms of gameplay as well, but mostly in terms of story, this one actually kind of ascended to a crescendo, not counting the post-Catwoman thing, which, which was just kind of whatever. The first thing I want to talk about is how I love the base premise. Not the city, uh, you know, the, the gulag thing. What I mean is, okay, here's a superhero. Here's the superhero's rogue gallery. All of them are in the same place. Go. And they're not united, of course. Why would they be? They all care about their own things, and they all have their own agenda. Some of them are scheming. Some of them are just... You know, like Mad Hatter, he just wants to to have the same thing he usually wants. Zaz is just killing people. Freeze just wants to keep working on his thing. But everyone has their own agendas, and they all just kind of bounce off of each other in ways that seem perfectly logical to me. In many ways, I have heard some people refer to this as the fanfiction thing, but in the good sense rather than the bad sense. Because a good fanfic is not limited by the confines of, you know, having to maintain the status quo but also can think about how different people would interact under these circumstances, and that's a lot of what this feels like. How Hatter and Hugo and Raish, and Freeze and Penguin and Joker and Two-Face and Catwoman, I think that's the majority of that, all of them kind of interact and bounce off of each other in ways that are very logical and make perfect sense. I love this pile-up that we've got going on. And if I might be so bold, it adds a lot more to the the world the the structure the, the, the building of it I, I don't know how better to put it but it makes the, the overall world of the Arkhamverse feel like one rather than another random episode of batman like asylum don't mistake me i like asylum but i feel this kind of helps to establish the Arkhamverse as its own thing and that's a good thing i want to talk about act 1 act 1 is the the crime gangs so we got three major gangs we got two-face you know dents up there cobblepots over here And I guess I'm doing this in reverse for you guys, so excuse me. It would actually be uh, Dent, and then Cobblepot, and then Joker. Joker doesn't give a damn about anything. He's recruiting anybody who wants to come, except he might kill you or not, depending on his mood. Dent is being a lot more specific about who he recruits, and is trying to get in people who are trained and elite, and he's also sharing the loot with them. Cobblepot is recruiting everyone, but also is supported by his core elites, which are the mercenaries. And he's, um. Well, he's also forcing all of the recruits to kill each other in order to join. But he is giving them booze. What I find fascinating about this power dynamic is all three of them kind of balance off each other pretty well. Joker is mainly a force because of the brand. Because everyone knows the Joker. Because everyone's terrified of the Joker. And so lots of people want to join up with Joker's forces just because they're Joker's forces. Like, oh, well, that's got to be the winning side, right? I've seen this exact same thing happen in real life where people just sort of look at something and say, well, that has to be the winning team because it's got such and such on it. Even though there's no real logic connecting that, they just sort of presume it and, by presuming, tend to make it true. Joker's force is arguably the biggest force of the three entirely because of this mimetic status kind of a thing. Cobblepot's interesting. He's long-term planning but he has zero charisma. The man does not ha- know how to engender loyalty or decency. He just relies on the fact that I'm paying you, shut up. And he's basically setting himself up for a fall later. At some point or another one of his own people would get sufficiently pissed or try a coup and he'd be off and that would be the end of it. But He is still thinking long-term from a strategic perspective. Let me let me phrase this a different way. To quote Fire Emblem Awakening, for those of you aware of the series, he's playing this as if it's a game of chess. Now you're thinking, well, that's the right thing to do, right? Well, no, because a chess piece has no choice but to do what you tell it. A more modern example might be playing an RTS. You don't have to worry about whether or not a unit's going to follow your orders, or if they're going to betray you, or anything. They, They just do what they're told. And that is exactly his approach do what you're told, and he does have the strategy mapped out, but he doesn't have the loyalty mapped out. He doesn't know how to manage the people. Which brings us to Dent, who is getting really big in on getting the loyalty of the people, but he's got two things going against him, ironically. First of all, he's the smallest time of the three by far. I mean, he's taken up by Catwoman, which absolutely destroys his cred. And the only reason he sustains himself is because nobody big comes after him. We go after Cobblepot in Act 1. Cobblepot's basically the Act 1 end boss. And so he just kind of survives by virtue of being over there in the corner. So he's small time compared to the other two. The second problem he has is his duality problem. Or, if I could put it more simply, this is his problem. There are actually some conversations with the with the thugs, which I love, where they're like, "I'm going to go join Cobblepot." He's like, "What? Are you kidding? That man's a, a psychopath." Yeah, but at least you know where you stand with him. With Two Face, he's either really nice or really horrible, depending on a coin flip. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. So even though he's engendering loyalty and taking care of his people, handling the human side of things a little bit better, at the same time he's also handling it worse. Throughout Act One. Uh, we, we see the dynamic and the power play between these three. And there's always this background, you know, uh, 10 hours, right? The, the, the countdown that Hugo's giving. We also get some side quests. I don't actually have much to say about the side quests. They're, they're good. They're fun. There's not a lot of lore to really discuss there, other than just, like I said, showing what all the little guys are doing. You know, Deadshot's here, Hatter's here, uh, Zaz is here, Riddler's here, uh, Hush is here have to admit, I'm told some people had never even heard of Hush before this game, and so this was their introduction to Hush, to Thomas Elliot, which is that's gotta be a thing, right? But this leads neatly into Act 2, which is all about... Now, you'll notice Act 2 is actually prompted by Joker. you notice I didn't even mention Joker other than mention he was one of the, the gang bosses. Because a lot of focus is put on Joker, despite the fact that he's not really doing anything. Oh, he's scheming like he always is, but ultimately, survival is actually his goal here, because he's dying. Also, I think this is when Joker finally started to go insane, since I've said many times that I feel he was actually perfectly sane back in Asylum. But now, oh no, now he's lost it. Understandably so. Joker's the one who prompts Act 2, because he's the one who infects Bats, and now Bats, well, now he's got to deal with something. This leads Bats to Raish. Now, that, that's its whole thing. We introduce Talia. Um, I don't know if Damien's a thing in the Arkhamverse. I guess we'll find out in Arkham Knight whenever we get there. But either way, Ra's... I kind of like this take on Ra's. He's someone who is just... I mean, he's very Racial Ghoul. But he's tired and he's old and it's taking a toll on him. And he's legitimately afraid of becoming an actual monster. Now, we could argue whether or not he is a monster or not. But... My point is, Ray al Ghul, for all his evil, which I would say he is, is nowhere near as bad as some of the other people in this game. Many of the other villains in this game. And he is afraid he's going to become like them. So he doesn't want to keep doing this. He needs, he needs a successor. And Bats is the perfect successor. Duh, right? So it makes so much sense that he would invest so much time and effort in trying to get Bruce into his side and recruit him. And it just fails miserably. Which leads us neatly into... Strange. Now, I've always liked Hugo Strange a little bit, but this is easily my favorite portrayal of Hugo Strange, ever. First of all, because, you know, Mr. Burton is amazing. But second of all, he's a perfect Krennic. Now, uh, for those of you not aware of the the archetype, a Krennic is someone who is, is a little fish in a big pond who thinks that they're a shark. The, the, both of those aspects are very important for it to be a critic. They have to be pathetic and they have to think they are much bigger and more important than they are. This can be in terms of personal power, in terms of political power, or financial influence, or whatever. Strange thinks he's the big boy. He makes repeated comments about uh, his his ascension to herohood and how he's going to rain hellfire and brimstone down upon Gotham and how he's going to re- revitalize everything and blah, blah 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 blah. And He's obviously built into the we need to purge the world in order to salvage it thing of race, right? But Hugo thinks he's a big boy. He is not. Hugo has one talent to him. He is an excellent psychoanalyst. He can read people. That's a good talent. It's a very useful talent. That's it. Everything else he does and manages in this game is because of and dependent on others. In many ways paralleling him to Bruce, but in a far more pathetic manner. Because while Bruce has confidence, Hugo has arrogance. And there is a distinction between the two, at least in my opinion. I love how much he he, he pushed, puts on this air of being completely above it all. And yet, as you encounter him in the tower, you can actually scan him and notice that his heart rate is through the roof, and he is very nervous, despite the fact that he is controlling himself and holding himself there. And of course, despite the fact that he's this psychiatrist, he has absolutely no interest in actually curing anyone. For all his statements on making the world better, it seems to me to be clear that the only thing he actually cares about is venerating himself, uplifting himself above the masses to feed his own ego. When he's shoved against the wall, looked at the damage that's being done down below as hundreds of people are dead, his response is, isn't it glorious? That's Hugo Strange. With the the defeat, with the death of Hugo and the death of Raish, that leads us directly into Act 3, the Joker. This is now the act. Th- act three is very short compared to act one and act two. In fact, if you notice, it's like act one, act two, act three is the overall structure. That works very well, though. Throughout the course of the game, Bruce is getting worse and worse, and, and I don't just mean physically, but they do show this physically. He takes more damage as he goes on, which is something they did in Asylum as well. But as he's going through, he's clearly it's it's getting to him, and he's getting tired of this, and he's getting frustrated, and the the attitude is just starting to bleed out. He actually outright tortures Freeze at one point. And he's, he's descending. Pretty notably. So this is getting to him. And this escalation of the pace of story and gameplay serves to help, es- to help magnify that escalation of his attitude as he goes through it. You notice that at the end of the game, not kind of the DLC, because we're, we're just ejecting that the end of the game, he doesn't even have anything to say as he's carrying Joker. He doesn't even talk to Gordon. He just, he just can't. He just can't. Because he's been pushed beyond. No, not, not Terry. Not, come on, guys. <clears throat> Act 3 is all about the Joker and Batman and their dynamic. There's several times where Joker leaves you phone calls. And, oh my god, he's the crazy ex. Or the crazy girlfriend. You know, the crazy clinging girlfriend. You ever have one of those? I've had one. Uh, when I was in a wheelchair, I mentioned this during the stream. And yeah, he's he's full on that. Which makes perfect sense, because of course that's the one thing he really cares about, is bats. And that's the one thing that makes his life worth living, and blah blah blah. It's probably the only thing giving him any semblance of sanity. So they have the final confrontation, and we get the big reveal that Clayface was him. There's something I never noticed before. Joker sounds different when he's... Let me say this Mark. Mark Hamill sounds different when he's playing Clayface playing Joker than when he's playing Joker. And if that doesn't sound like a feat, you have not studied voice acting like I have. That is very... It's very, very hard to play a character playing a character. What most actors do is they just jump over to play the second character. This is one of the reasons why in a lot of movies and television shows you'll see someone who suddenly betrays you and they just horrifically evil and there was no sign of that before because... The actor didn't know how to play someone who was evil playing someone good, so instead they just played someone good. And so there's literally no signs there that we, the audience, can pull out of their performance. Just to use an example of what I'm talking about. But Hamill, he's amazing. He manages to sound like Clayface playing Joker. But the other thing I never noticed is he doesn't say bats. Joker always calls him bats. Clayface always calls him the Batman or Batman or something similar he never actually calls him bets it's a really small distinction you can always tell which one's talking based on that alone and of course the performance thing when we defeat clayface i the ending is poetry i absolutely love this ending no not that kind of poetry lucas the idea, the fact that joker kills himself Unintentionally, but by all ta- by all accounts, Joker ends up killing himself. He had to get that last stab. He had to do it. He couldn't help himself. Is the way I like to think of that. Especially at this point in time, he could not help but literally backstab Bruce in order to try and take the thing because he could not conceive of the situation being any other way. Right? It's just who he is and what he is, which is why Bats would have given it him. Would have given him the antidote because Bats cannot help being. Who and what he is either, which leads me to my final thought here. What do you think is going through Bats' mind as he's leaving, as he's carrying Joker out? What do you think is going through that head of his? Now I'd love to hear your guys' thoughts, legit. But I do want to give you my thoughts as well. One of the things that I can definitively say in the Arkhamverse, I'm not sure about the rest of Batman Mythos, but at least in the Arkhamverse, Bruce does not make things better. He doesn't make things worse. I don't agree with Hugo Strange's big speech that you are the reason all these villains exist. Because I've always hated that crap. I hated that crap in Civil War. I hated that crap in... Oh, God, I don't remember any of I can't remember any of the examples. But I've, I've seen that argument before on superhero stuff. But I've never agreed with it. Except in, like, very specific extreme circumstances. But I, as much as I don't think Bats is making things worse, I don't think he's making things better. And I think this is his re- realization. I think... The fact that he is coming to the realization that he was about to save the Joker's life. That right there. Not the fact that Joker died. But the fact that he was going to save him. Hits him across the face. Like a 4 by 4 I think that is what's going through his head. I am part of the problem. And I think that's what's really dragging him down. And adds so much weight to the final scenes. This is a very, very, very good game that I absolutely adored going back through. If you have not played it, I highly recommend it. Uh, Tomorrow I'll be starting Arkham Knight for the first time for me. I've never actually played Arkham Knight, so I hope to see at least some of you there. We'll see you next time.